Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. I am so thrilled to be joined today on the show by Kate Moss, who probably doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'll introduce her anyway. Uh, Kate is the best-selling author of many novels, including the international best-selling series Labyrinth, as well as The Burning Chambers, the latest of which was released earlier this year, The City of Tears. Kate is also the author of a number of nonfiction books and a playwright. Um, Kate is also the co-founder and chair of the Women's Prize for Fiction and is an absolute champion of writers and creatives welcome to the show it's great to be here lovely to meet you it's so lovely to meet you yeah I know it's funny isn't it I just um I mean I'm so thrilled that you agreed to be on the show um with with you've just written and released in the past week um an extra pair of hands um which is a story of caring aging and everyday acts of love um and I have to say when I saw last year that it was announced that you'd written it I was I couldn't have been more thrilled um, I think if I could have asked for anyone to have contributed to writing that caring, it would have been it would have been you. So thank you so much for writing it for a start. And I'm sure you're going to be hearing that a lot because, as we both know, it's a topic that's not always written about and always talked about. So it's just incredible to see more and more being spoken about um, about the lives of women, particularly, um, which you know these stories have not historically been told. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's funny because when I was, um, you know, for, for listeners, when I was uh, thinking about whether to write the book at all, it was a really big decision for me to, to write it because I'm not a confessional writer. I'm not a nonfiction writer. Normally, um, you know, I did my very first book was personal and it was about being pregnant. And I partly written that because I really hated the experience of being pregnant, <laughs> um, but loved the experience of being a mother and so you know I thought that was quite interesting that nobody really talked about you know those emotions but apart from that um I, I had to think really long and hard about putting my personal life and on the page and I read a lot of books in the area when Wellcome Trust had approached me and your book Tender was one of them uh, which is why we think we know each other but we've never actually <laughs> yeah. met um and it was very interesting because I think there were there's a small number of really wonderful books of which yours is one um where I thought, oh yeah, okay, it is possible to do this. You can do this in a way that is respectful of the other people, that you're not taking their stories from them. Um, but actually, if those of us who have a voice don't talk about being carers, then nothing will ever change. Because we're, you know, I think the new figure is 13 million of us after the pandemic, unpaid carers, hidden in plain sight, or where yeah. everywhere. And so it, it was that in a way that tipped me over, but also reading other books and thinking, yes, it's, there is a way of doing this that doesn't feel like bearing your soul in a, in a way that would be uncomfortable for me. Yeah, no, that's so interesting because I obviously had the same dilemmas when I was making the decision about whether to talk about my experience. Um, and it, it was a really difficult choice. And in fact, since the book has come out, I mean, it's mostly been incredibly, incredibly positive of carers approaching me and saying, thank you. I've never seen my experience written like that. I've never seen myself in a book like that before. And, but I've also had, and I don't know, I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but I have had a little bit of the opposite, which is that I've seen um, a bit of criticism towards uh, carers who share their experience that they shouldn't ever be sharing their experience because it's not only their story because other people are involved and particularly when it's a disabled person involved. Um, and so obviously that was the thing I was most terrified about and it was a really difficult decision. But ultimately for me, and I don't know if this is, I think this is potentially how you feel about it, it it's about um, if we don't share our stories, if women don't share our stories, no one will ever hear them. And these are the stories, caring stories are the stories of women and often um, the most marginalised women as well. And even historically, you know, servants and slaves. Um, so... So for me, that was the tipping point for me, was yeah, yeah. I need to, I just need to find a respectful way of sharing. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. I haven't had any of that, but I was fearful of having that. Um, and I think what was really, um, I suppose, slightly different was that I, I could talk to my sisters, I could talk to my husband, um, talk to my children about what, um, you know, I felt that I knew what my parents, there's... Don't worry, keep going. <laughs> you sure you don't want to get yeah, the package? No, it's, no. Fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, so um, 
so I thought very, very long and hard about whether anything that I thought that they would not want, I didn't put on the page. So there's a great deal that I don't say um, mm. because I feel that I know or knew my parents very, very well. And the book is a tribute to them, an extra pair of hands, you know, to, to, to them both. And there were moments that I kind of withdrew and didn't um, go any further because I knew that they wouldn't want those things. But other things I knew that they would want to share. So my father suffered um, very much at the end of his life from uh, Parkinson's. Mm. Um, but he'd lived a healthy life with it for quite a long time before that. Yeah. Um, and because of that, um, he was very, very sensitive. And I think this is where conversations about disability come in. He understood that a lot of people feel um, embarrassed about being confronted with somebody who has a disability. Mm. They don't quite know how to behave. And my dad was such a gentlemanly, kind, lovely man that he made it possible for people to engage with him. Mm. Um, and many people with a disability like Parkinson's, which is, has physical um, emanations and suddenly appears out of nowhere and goes away again, um, they kind of withdraw, not because they can't get out and about, but because other people's reactions are so painful. So I mentioned it in the book at one moment when we went to our local pub. My father was in a wheelchair at that stage and he asked for a glass of red wine and asked to have it served in two tumblers. And... And he said, because then it won't spill, my hands won't shake. Do you see? And the bar lady afterwards said, that was just such a wonderful thing. He said, because we knew there was something, but we weren't entirely sure. And he said, and your dad just made it possible for everybody to be relaxed around him. Mm. Um, so I, you know, so that was my decision all the way through. Anything that I felt that they would be really happy to have in the book went in. And of course, I had an enormous advantage with the legendary Granny Rosie, for whom yes. I'm a full-time carer, who's 90 now, because as I wrote chapter by chapter, I was sharing it with Rosie, saying, anything you don't want in, or anything I've missed out that you'd like in. And she was much, she's very matter-of-fact and down-to-earth and earthy. Mm. So she said, you haven't put that in or that in. I said, I don't think you'd want that kind of personal stuff. She said, oh, I don't care what you put in. But I made decisions on her behalf, yes. some of the things that she was really, didn't mind at all. Um, but I think there is a question there because you don't want to speak for other people and you don't want to take other people's experiences from them. But as you say, you know, women have, by the age of 59, which is what I am now, of, um, a 50-50 chance of being a carer. And the odds for men are not that till they're 75, which to yeah. me suggests that women are caring for everybody and men are caring for female partners. Yes. I mean, I don't know. That's based on that's, nothing other than my instinct. But. Yeah, I, I, I agree because having done similar research because, um, you know, beautifully you've woven all of that research and detail into the book as well, which I think is so helpful and powerful to be able to really just see how not alone you are as well when you when you read it. Um, and having done that research as well, there's so much you can extrapolate from the data. And I think the first thing I was really surprised about when I first started looking at the data was actually more and more men are caring if you looked at the basic figure i think it's something like 60 percent women 40 percent men or even 59 percent women but of course as soon as you break that data down what you realize is women are caring for most of their lives and um and men are caring just sort of maybe post-retirement um and so that's the big difference between the genders and it's it's women who are giving up paid work it's women who are reducing paid work who are not paying into their pensions, who are doing it for maybe 20 years as opposed to four years or something. Um, and I think that's the big difference. Um, so it is, it is really important, I think, to break that down because even though things are changing and men are doing yeah, and, and it. it, and it is great because yeah. everybody should be respected for the, for the caring that they do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have a male agent and a male um, editor, um, you know, who's the head of the publishing company that, that is, uh, is publishing an extra pair of hands and they both do have had a, a watching brief but when it was broken down it was exactly the same thing that you know in the end it was the wife was doing more of the of the actual caring for a longer period of time um and I think you know that your you know your point about that this is being about women's stories and hidden stories it's I think you and I agree on these things that things need to change in care and we, it needs to be grasped that, that you know, that, that nettle needs to be grasped and it hasn't been. And I think that unless we all start speaking up so that politicians believe that we think it's priority, that yes. the electorate, then it, really nothing will change. And so that also for me was part of thinking, 
you've, you know, you've got to be part of this conversation. You can't just, you know. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I love about the book as well is it is such a positive experience of caring. And that is so important. You know, we're not both of us, I think, you know, don't want to be those people talking about it because it's just always awful or always so difficult. It is, of course, cha really challenging being a carer and we do need a lot of support. But we've both experienced it in a really positive way as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is so important to share those stories. Um, it's a really tricky balance because, of course, you know, like you, I really want things to change politically. They need to change. People often don't understand that when it comes to caring for a loved one, the NHS won't do it for them, you know, um, that it's very much going to be down to your unpaid work. And I think if people really understood that, they would vote differently and their priorities would be different. What they would expect of their MPs in terms of voting might be different. Um, so, yeah, so for me, I'm, yeah, I feel very passionate about sharing these stories. Um, and so... Um, Granny Rosie, my goodness, she is just a phenomenon. She is a hoot. She is. <laughs> she is a legend. Uh, everybody calls her Granny Rosie locally. Um, we live in, in Chichester in Sussex, and she is known to everybody as Granny Rosie. Oh. Um, most people don't even know she's got a surname. You know, she's just exactly <laughs> out there. She just is like the Queen, Granny Rosie. Um, and I think she is such a great example of why the language as well around ageing needs to change. Yeah. Because there's always such a sort of negative uh, tone to everything. Um, the idea that people living longer is a, is a problem, as mm -hmm. opposed to evidence of the incredible success of the National Health Service. Uh, you know, it's, it's just quite astonishing. In the last hundred years, you know, people would not expect to live much beyond their 60s. Now people routinely expect to live into their 80s, 90s, and even 100s. You know, mm. this is why, you know, the famous telegram from the Queen, they get, don't do it quite so early now because, you know, there's so many. There's that would so have many. <laughs> just so brilliant. Um, and also I think it, come, it fits into debates, uh, discussions about disabilities as well, which is underneath it all, there's always this slightly, the idea that some people are more valuable than others. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. it's based on your abilities or your age rather than what you do. And Granny Rosie is um, astonishing. And she knits all the Ooh. time for Ooh, the children's... The cat is on the table. The cat now. is trying to get onto the laptop. The postman has gone, but the cat <laughs> has come. It's chaos here this morning. It's chaos, <laughs> chaos. Um, and so it's really... So, I mean, I feel very strongly about that, that... Um, our views of aging need to change. It is, mm. of course, true. If people live for longer, they're, they're more likely to live for longer with particular ailments. Yeah. Um, but unless you have something specific that carries you off or is very life-limiting, that sense of 80 being the new 60, I think is completely... Or as Granny says, 90 is the new 60. I think that's pushing it slightly. <laughs> um, so, but it was, it's, you know, it's been really... I did want the book to be positive. Yeah. I don't want to gloss over... The tough stuff yeah um and also i am very 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 aware that i'm incredibly privileged and in a very lucky position i'm a writer i have a husband who you know i met when i was 15. um my sisters and brothers-in-law all live here i have a great deal of support um and um i have three wonderful parents that i loved to bits and miss all the time and granny rosie who i loved to bits and nobody had alzheimer's or dementia and that's the game changer um, for, for everybody, you know, trying to care for somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia who doesn't know who you are, mm. um, all of these things. So I'm very conscious of my fortune and my privilege in all of this. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't tough challenges yes, and all these exactly. things, but, yeah. you know, but, I, I, but that's why I wanted there to be the joy because Granny yeah. Rosie and I are pals and yeah. we sit, you know, at every, at the end of the kitchen table every evening, mostly, and she'll say, is the sun over the yard arm? And I'll say it's over the yard arm somewhere and out will come the gin and tonic um, for Granny Rosie, glass of white wine for me. Um, and, you know, that, that's the thing, that she's great company. And yeah. we are, she didn't have any daughters. So I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. That's the yeah. other thing that can be so, you know, whereas I know you're in a very different position because you are caring as a single parent, aren't you? So you're yeah. not, you know, um, and... You know, and yesterday when I did an event, um, the vice chair of Carers UK was there and came up and she told me some of her stories and other people came up. And you listen to what some people are coping with. Mm. Um, you know, somebody who, you know, caring with, for a, a, a disabled sibling and a husband with Alzheimer's. Yeah. And you think, yeah. Wow. I mean, the stories, particularly this last year, the stories that I've heard, um, you know, there are many people caught 
many people caring for two family members with, right. with really with challenging disabilities or chronic illnesses that um, have different needs from each other. And as a parent with two children with two very different needs, um, I know that feeling very well, especially when the children were very young. Um, it's getting a little bit less challenging, now, I suppose, because my daughter can be quite flexible now that she's a bit older. But it's that kind of constantly being pulled in two directions and being like, I'm actually not doing enough for anybody here, including yeah. myself. And it's really, yeah, yeah. and that's a really difficult thing. And yeah. I think, um, again, that's something that's not discussed very often. And again, why I love the way you talked through your three different experiences. So you cared for, for your father um, and then for your mother briefly, you gave her support as well. And then um, now obviously ongoing Granny Rosie. And I love that because that's actually more typical to be yeah. a, a number of times is really yeah. typical. And we don't discuss that much either. No. And, and also that once you kind of have done it, you are you are the capable extra pair of hands so people kind yes. of assume that it will be you you know the one thing that my sisters and i you know they live very close by um which is obviously a great help but for a lot of people um the conversations i've been having there is often a daughter who has found herself taking the full responsibility with brothers who live quite a long way away. Mm. Um, and that I think can be very complicated within families, you know, some siblings feeling that other people aren't pulling their weight and, mm. um, you know, and, and, and in fact, one of the um, journalists that interviewed me, you know, she was really distressed when we were talking. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, and she said, no, I love your book. I think it's absolutely beautiful and wonderful. But, and then it turned out that her, father had just been diagnosed uh, with um, early onset Parkinson's, mm. younger than me. Um, but her mother had already been caring for her grandfather with Parkinson's. Her mother had had like a year off. Yeah. Oh probably. gosh. Yeah. And, and, it, and she, she was upset for her, for her mother, but we were able to talk about that because I said, you know, the thing is, I, I care willingly. And from everything you've told me, so does she. Mm. And actually it's just about you, you want to be the person to step up. You don't yes, want yes. somebody else to do it, you know? So, yes. you know, that, that, that's, that's the thing that I think even in our darkest hours, people like you and me and many of the other people who have been writing about it, in the end, there isn't a choice. We're not saying, well, I wish I didn't have to do it. Yes. You, know, you might wish the situation was different, but... Yes. Or wish it was easier, you know, wish, it, wish there wasn't quite so much um suffering on you know for the yeah. person that you're supporting yeah. yeah yeah but it's that's true of I interviewed I think about sort of 30 or so people for my book and not one of them said I wish I wasn't doing it no one of no. them and I think I, I think it's quite interesting because that's part of the debate I think on care is like mm. I'm, I'm not saying I don't think families should care for their loved ones I'm absolutely not saying that yeah but what I am saying is that there should be a safety net where because yes. what about people without families what about somebody you know I know who is now on her own, um, she had a daughter, her daughter died, mm. you know, and so what are we saying that somehow she's going to have nobody? There, there is nobody. No, there yeah. is absolutely yeah. nobody. So it's that kind of sign, isn't it, that there's the, the sort of society that we all want to live in surely is one that understands that you learn more about society for how they care for mm. the weaker people, the people absolutely. who need more support than the you know the ones who are all fine so it's not in place of family caring no absolutely not it's supporting family caring yeah because yeah. yeah, i mean one thing that you know my my son can be it can be physically quite challenging especially when we leave the house because there are lots of things that could go wrong um if if i'm injured in any way i can't take him out of the house no you know so that's the kind of yeah. thing that obviously as i get older as well and hopefully i'll be very fit and well for a very long time but you know obviously we're humans things happen um yeah, yeah. you know illnesses happen treatments have to happen things like that and so there does need to be support in place to kind of catch the carers when yeah yeah as well. yes yeah and i mean i think what okay this is um carers week at the moment as we uh, as we know and um they've been putting out quite a lot of statistics carers uk and it's that thing that many carers over the pandemic um haven't had a day off in mm. 15 months not a single day without that pressure or that concern and i think you know their strap line this year is making caring visible and valued and i think that that is that's the issue about how we care for carers because mm. without yeah. carers then the whole shooting match falls oh apart, everything, doesn't falls, it? Apart. everything falls, falls apart everything falls apart you know yeah, yeah. um yeah 
Well, can I can I bring it back to writing for a second? Because I would love to know how you structure your days as well. Um, mm -hmm. I know because you you obviously spend a lot of your time writing fiction, um, but you yeah. also do broadcasting and all sorts of other things as well. Um, so so how do you and Granny Rosie get on with your day? And obviously, I know your husband's also there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Greg is absolutely part time? of the team. Um, well, I mean, I don't have a very um, rigid structure in terms of day by day or week by week. It's, it's different depending on what I'm doing. So when I'm researching a big historical, um, I am out and about, mm. um, you know, and I will go abroad. You know, one of the reasons that I stopped writing historical fiction for quite a long time was because I couldn't travel anymore because my, my dad, um, need, you know, we all needed to be here all the time mm, and it, yeah. it wasn't fair to go. So that's when I started to write ghost stories set in Sussex closer to home because <laughs> I could still write. But I didn't need to go to, you know, research. Um, so the research time is very, very different. Um, and that I, I love research and I, I love the physical research. So not just the book research and the archives and all of these things, but I love being in a place and getting mm. under the skin of a place. You know, it's like being a detective when yeah. you're trying to bring the past out um, and sort of standing in Carcassonne or Amsterdam or the third one in the Burning Chamber sequence is set. It starts in Tenerife, uh, which is, you know, was the great wine producing uh, place of the 17th century. And yeah. um, so, it's, you know, brilliant sort of links between Languedoc and their wine and then uh, Tenerife and ending up in South Africa. And... Um, so it's that sense of you, you stand there in a place like Garachico, which is, you know, was destroyed by a volcano in 1706. So what you see there now is, is all quite modern, but imagining what was there before, because that's my job as a historical novelist to bring mm. those things. And so that is a very different sort of thing. But when I'm actually writing, so um, I, I kind of teet around it. It's like standing on the edge of the swimming pool, you know, the water's cold taking ages to get in which is me anyway I mean it has to be really hot for me to get to the water um and I'm not one of these new let's all go cold water swimming all the time people um and um and so I kind of prepare and I prepare and I prepare and then once I jump in I'm in mm. so then for a first draft of a book I'll write obviously around um Granny Rosie's needs or, or or indeed my husband you know depending on when whether he's here or working or, or whatever or the children even though they're grown-ups um I'll write pretty much eight hours a day seven days a week till I've got a first draft oh. because I never quite know what book I'm writing till I've got mm. something so you grab the momentum and you just you stick yeah. with it until yeah. it's done yeah yeah and I don't I don't worry about it being shabby and not very well written or not making sense I just go let's get all this down and see what we've got to play with. And then the second and third drafts are about structure, about making it work, about, so with the City of Tears, at the heart of it's a lost child story. That wasn't what I was expecting. Mm. So when I start, I know that it's going to start in 1572. I know it's going to 1594. Um, I know the real history that happens behind all of it, but then I will make the decision. Yeah, but what is it that's happening to my characters? And I find that out through the writing. And then I think, actually, that doesn't work and this works. So whereas obviously writing an extra pair of hands was different. One, because I was writing it during lockdown. Mm. Um, and actually, there were things about lockdown that were quite a relief, actually, um, because I'm sure you feel this, Penny, sometimes. The thing about being a carer is that you are often the unreliable person, mm -hmm. the person who says you're going to meet your friends for dinner and then you have to go, I'm really sorry something's happened, I, I can't, or... Um, all of that. And so when everything migrated onto the computer, I could do even more work than before. I could, you know, do events anywhere in the world. Yeah. It only takes an hour rather than yeah. the traveling to London and, you know, all of that, finding somebody to make sure somebody's at home, um, all of this sort of stuff. So um, I found writing an extra pair of hands during lockdown really good experience. And I spent a long time trying to decide how to do it. And then I thought, actually, just, it's not any different. You just need mm -hmm. to trust your memory and your emotion here. Yeah. And, the, and the minute I decided that, I thought, oh, yeah. And so I started the book with, with a, just a memory of a journey back from relatives. And last night in the event, both my sisters were there. And they, and they were trying to remember if they could remember that journey or it was another journey. Because I say mm -hmm. there were so many journeys like this. Um, so it was, it was just in a way realizing that the research in this case was just my memory. Yeah. And once I'd done that, I, I, I kind of wrote by instinct again, just let it 
let it go in the direction. And it fell into three distinct sections quite easily. You know, my, my experience with my father, then my time, you know, with my ma as a widow, her as a widow, and then obviously ongoing Granny Rosie. And because of the nature of things, did write a final chapter because when I delivered the book in October, we all kind of thought the pandemic was running its course. And then, of course, everybody, I think, had the worst time from January to March this year. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, we as a family certainly found it a lot more challenging this winter, even though um, we had more access to school and things as a family. Um, but it's, I think, and that's, I think, another aspect of being a carer as well, which is that, you know, it's a very ongoing thing and you have to preserve your energy. And I think we spent a lot of energy last year when we thought it was maybe only going to be three to six months. And yeah, yeah. everyone was, I think, pretty burnt out by the winter and that to continue that level of keeping everything up, it was, it was a huge challenge for a lot of people. But um, so can I also ask you a little bit about the Women's Prize? Um the win is going to be announced very, very shortly, which is very exciting. Um, but I just wanted to talk to you about, take you back to when it was founded, because um, from what I understand, it was, was it a, a reaction to, um, you know, one year the Booker Prize was entirely male list? Yeah. And I think it's, I don't know the exact statistics, but it's around 70% of female authors publish, right, and have published for a long time. And so, um, you know, women buy books, women write books, um, and they weren't being reflected at all in the literary prize. Yes, it was, um, it, it was triggered by that particular uh, Booker Prize of 1991. And I should say, you know, as someone obviously who runs a prize and been involved with judging, all the judges are allowed to choose the books that they feel most fulfill the brief of the prize. Hmm. So it's not problem that they chose all men the issue was they didn't notice yes that was that's the point yes. um and a lot of us men and women in publishing said could you imagine if they'd put out a list of all female without commenting on it everybody would have seen that as political mm. and radical and deliberate and nothing to do with the quality of the work whereas because it was all men it was just like well this is what literature is nobody questioned mm. it um so then we did a group of us kind of found ourselves together saying does it matter and if it does matter why does it matter and if it does matter and why it matters then what are we going to do about it yeah. and prizes put books of quality in the hands of readers it's as simple as that that's why they matter um there are lots of people who don't really like the idea of pitting books against each other and i have every sympathy but every prize you can choose to be entered for it or not just you know you don't have to engage with it but in, in terms of readership it gets um sometimes the beautiful books and the quiet books that don't get all the attention you know i'm a mass market writer i don't have a problem with attention because there's loads of my books in the bookshop and i'm yeah. very very lucky but some of the books that appear on the women's prize for fiction um shortlist would never get that level of attention some would of course but a lot don't and so we decided that yeah prizes did matter and we did the research. And at that point, so um, when we were doing the research in the early 90s, it was about 60% of novels authored were authored by women. Mm -hmm. And 75% of novels bought were bought by women. Mm. Um, so, but fewer than 9% of books ever shortlisted for major literary prizes were by women. So there was a real disconnect. Massive mismatch, yeah. And it wasn't about whether uh, women's access to market, or I should say, um, certain women's access to market. I mean, uh, black women's writing and women of colour did not have the same access to getting published at all. Um, but it did show that there was a, a sense of the honouring and respecting and valuing of women's writing as yeah. literature was missing. And um, and actually, you know, I mean, it's such a cliche to say the rest is history, but it kind of is. I mean, it's mm. been a tough old road at times. Um, it's been, it's very interesting that still, uh, we talk about its or origin story when it's the most successful literary prize in terms of selling books, except for the booker. When the booker gets it right, the booker winner sell sells more than anybody else. But actually, when you look at the best-selling books that are prize winners, more of them are actually women's prize books. Yeah. Um, you know, it really works. And that's partly because we are built on accessibility, um, excellence, um, ambition, diversity it was always an english language prize for women anywhere in the world your nationality your country of origin or birth or residence your genre none of these things mattered just the text written in english yeah. by a woman and i think that was always built in as was all the educational and research projects as part of it so there was it, it, we had a sort of a a bigger 
point to the prize. It wasn't just a load of people in black ties sitting around slapping each other on the back going, jolly good, well done. You know, it was, it was a prize that was founded to look outwards to readers and to, and you know, the dialogue. It's so interesting because I think when you look at the shortlist and the long list over the years, there is such diversity, particularly within genre, which is something that you don't always see in other prizes. Um, and, um, and that's what I love about it. I'm a very much a cross-genre reader. I read every kind of genre from rom-com and YA and um, speculative and liter literary fiction and all sorts of things. And so for me, that's what one of the things I love most about the prize is the, the crossover of genre. But I mean, I was looking at some of the numbers uh, on the on the Women's Prize website, 5.4 million copies of winning books sold just in the UK alone. I mean, that yeah. is absolutely incredible, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, and that's, and, and it's also part of respecting women's work um, you know, the, the idea is precisely that, that if an author wins the Women's Prize or equally shortlisted for the Women's mm. Prize, that is an investment in her future to enable her to write more. You know, she's got more time to be a writer. Yeah. You know, so it, it's about genuinely trying to support the ecosystem of women. Um, you know, the, 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 there's still that sort of old idea. You know, I, I've still get asked, even at my grand old age and I'm quite visible in all of these things, uh, an assumption that my husband must be incredibly wealthy because otherwise, how could I be a novelist? Uh, well, yeah. you know, in, yeah. you know I, I, I am, you know, I, I'm earning the money here with, yeah. with writing these novels. Um, but that's what we wanted to do with the prize. And that's why at that stage, the prize money, when it, we set it up was £30,000 was the biggest prize money. Mm. Um, the booker you know, reacted by upping their money, which was quite funny. Oh, that uh, but that's great. Yeah. But it's great because that means that's more money, still for more, money that's more money for writers. Exactly. We're not in competition with uh, the Booker Prize or any other prize. And the thing that I feel really proud about is that the sheer existence of the Women's Prize um, acted as a sort of lightning rod for discussions about this. Mm. And now it's completely part of every single you know, piece of discourse. Everybody always says, you know, there are four women and two men or, you know, it, people now see that yeah. in a way that they didn't. And in other areas of arts where things, the, this revolution hasn't really happened yet. Yes. Um, it's quite interesting, you know, quite often being asked to talk classical music or the, these sorts of things where the proportions and uh, are, are tiny of, of women conductors or women's com compositions being uh, performed. You know, they're in, you often say to people, name a woman composer and they can't. But of mm. course, there are amazing women composers, you know, not least of all the great Erilyn Wallen, who's just going from strength to strength at the moment. And so it's it's that it's about putting it out in the open, much like you and I are doing about caring. Mm. Once once it's out there, more people talk about it and then more people talk about it, it becomes normal. And that was what the prize yes. wanted to do. Well, very successfully, I have yeah. to say, <laughs> very, very successfully. Um, and it's interesting because I know at first and possibly at different times over the years, there was some criticism levelled at the idea that um, there is a, a, a prize just for women. And um, and interestingly, you know, I don't know if you saw in the last week or so, a particular female author who burnt her books because she didn't like the way that the marketing team had marketed her as women's fiction. And I'm doing that with little bunny ears. Um, I personally love women's fiction. And I know that there was a lot of there response was. to that on Twitter because there are many of us who are very loud who love writing by women. Um, I was a little bit almost surprised to see that attitude still happening. Are you surprised to still see that sort of slight disparaging of, of women writers? Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not going to get into what Jeanette Woodson was intending or doing. Yes, or yeah, whatever. forgetting about that. Um, yeah, yeah um, you know, um, she's a writer I admire enormously. Yeah. But, you know, but let the, we're going to pass over this. Yeah. Um, I do think there is still a great deal of snobbery. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that there is still a snobbery around genre, even though crime writing is the most successful genre. Um, but there's still the sort of, oh yeah, but it, it's just a crime novel. You know, the truth is, you know, Margaret Atwood put the, puts this in her wonderful book, Negotiating with the Dead, which is her book about being a writer. And, you know, she essentially says, you know, there are, there are you know, two types of books that work, achieve what they set out to do, and books that don't achieve what they set out to do. And that's it, really. Yes. Um, yes. But I think that there is a great deal of snobbery. And, um, and I think that those of us who are in the more commercial field um, 
notice this quite a lot. You know, I mean, it, it, it is quite a, somebody who sells a huge number of copies very much in my area. You know, he said to me the other day, he said, quite extraordinary. Somebody actually said to me uh, the other day, he said, I didn't realize you were a good writer. And it was what? like the idea that, oh, yeah, you can tell a story, but the quality of your writing isn't very good. So Just I think because still, of the genre he chooses to write it. Genre. And also there's still a, a slightly... For somebody like he does, I won't say who it is, who sells a lot of copies, there is mm. the idea that the quality of the work diminishes the more the sales go up. Yeah. Um, and every now and again, obviously, there's somebody who turns the tide on this, Hilary Mantel, or yes. obviously our lovely winner of last year, Maggie O'Farrell with Hamlet. And that book's been an enormous, enormous success um, and is a beautiful book. Um, but there is still, I think, in a lot of uh, publishing and media ideas, the idea that if you sell a lot, the work can't be very good. And it's that kind of old thing at the Hamlet, you know, caviar to the general, that the yeah. general public don't know quality. So if they're all buying it, then it can't be very good. And I think there is still an element of that in there, yeah. actually. I mean, it's interesting. I think that's where one of the reasons I love the, the mix of genres in the Women's Prize, because, you know, the fact that in the shortlist, there is a fantasy novel essentially absolutely and yeah. a phenomenal one at that but I love that always I mean obviously I'm very pleased for the author herself but it's really wonderful for the genre to see yeah. a book recognized in that way for the incredible quality of her writing and storytelling yes and, and, I, and I think and obviously you know any everybody who is sensible understands that a group of judges will have their own dynamic. We have different judges every year. Mm. And it's why we always announce the judges after the deadline for submissions. Yes. Because otherwise, yeah. publishers would start moving books around thinking, oh, you know, this book might play well to that judge, but it won't yeah. play well to this judge. You know, all of this sort of stuff. So you have to really be mindful of all of these things. But um, in terms of uh, the way that it works is that we ask the judges to look for excellence, originality, and accessibility. Mm -hmm. And we mean using accessibility in the terms of not being solipsistic. So a yeah. book that is speaking to readers, not, you know, sort of, you know, lowest common denominator or anything, but also saying, is this a book that speaks to now in whatever way? Mm -hmm. Is this a book that in 10 years time, when you get it off the shelf, you will still be proud to share with somebody? And for me, is it a book that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand on end? Mm. You know, and, and you don't have to like it. You know, I, yes. every year, of course, I look at, you know, I've got the whole shortlist sitting here because we, we're doing our digital festival next week. Um, and obviously there were, in the six, there will be books that more appeal to my taste and, and ones that do less so. But every book is excellent. Yes. Yes, That's I agree. I've, I've managed to, I think I read, I've read 11 on the long list this year. Wow, well done. I've got, <laughs> one left to do on the shortlist which I've got to try and do before ne like the next week or so when it's announced um but it is they're all phenomenal they're absolutely yeah. phenomenal yeah they're so the, the quality of the writing is so incredible not every single one is my taste although a huge number of them are I have to say um they they are really phenomenal and I um I'm not going to ask your opinion because it's a completely inappropriate time to ask you for any of your opinions on that but if you do you have one from previous years is there is there one or two standouts for you that really touched you over the years I think yeah there, there I suppose that there are um you know it's hard because with Hamnet obviously that's our current winner um yeah. and also Maggie O'Farrell is a friend and yeah. it's a lovely thing when a, a friend wins. So, they, yeah. but but looking back further, which obviously we did last year, we celebrated our twenty mm. fifth. I would say that I have enormous affection for Fugitive Pieces, which won in the second year, mm -hmm. uh, which was exactly why the prize was set up. Um, a very successful Canadian poet, very very quiet, serious woman, Anne Michaels. Uh, she had been working on this novel for ten years. When it was published, there were no reviews. Nobody took it seriously, even though the publisher, Liz Calder, the great Liz Calder, um, is the person who first published Ian McEwan, Salman mm -hmm. Rushdie, Martin, you know, and she was saying, this is what the best first novel I've published for, you know, for, for years and years and years, but it didn't make any difference. You know, th this person wasn't somebody who was seen as important and it had sold 800 copies before it was shortlisted. It's now sold 18 million copies throughout the world. And it's the story, three generations of Jewish boys and men in Poland, in Greece, and then in Canada, the diaspora to Canada. Um, and obviously drawing on Anne's family history. 
Um, but it was, it was just a joy when she won because the newspapers had not got the measure of the prize at that moment. And they, mm -hmm. therefore, they'd heard of Annie Prue. So they assumed yeah. Annie Prue would win. So they'd basically written their stories. And so when it was announced that Anne Michaels had won, they had to pull their stories and it meant that Anne Michaels ended up on the front page <gasps> of the broadsheets because in those days, the innards were printed earlier and the front yeah. page was the only thing printed late. And that was a, a wonderful moment. And actually her shock and her publisher's shock when she won. And that, and that I feel it's such an important novel and it was just completely ignored. And the prize changed that. Um, I also... I was really thrilled that Andrea Levy won for Small mm -hmm. Island. Yeah. I think that that's the beginning. She was such a pioneer in saying black voices ought to be allowed to write about anything that they want. And uh, no, she, was very, she was really a long time ahead of her time. I mean, it shouldn't have been ahead of her time. It should be completely obvious that a writer is a writer is a writer. But that's not how publishing really uh, did it. And I think she was an incredibly, such an important writer. A black British voice um, and Small Island is an extremely, extremely wonderful novel. Um, partly because precisely that thing that it's two couples, a black couple and a white couple, and all of the misunderstandings and the way that they work together, you know, what, what was Britain then. And I suppose the final one, um, you know, that, that I would say is we need to talk about Kevin. Ah, interesting. You know, because, interesting. Um, yeah. you know, separating all you know the conversations yeah. we ever have about is it the work is it the artist all yeah. of these sorts of things it is a really extraordinary novel mm. and it was really radical then yes the idea that to be a mother might be awful and that mm. you didn't want to be a mother and Lionel wrote it to try and work out her own feelings yeah. and we were and you know and she says quite wryly realized that it would be a good thing if she didn't have children that's what well, came into know, her mind I think that's still radical now I know, years I know. later i think yeah. you know that's a conversation that many people are still not willing to have no. you know the real dark side of it and also and the kind of, it, um, responsibility that's laid at the feet of women that's right yeah. and and also i mean i think the thing that was really interesting about uh, about the book was that nobody would publish it I mean, it was turned down by publisher after publisher after publisher. And in the end, it was published by Wonderful Serpent's Tale, who just took a punt on it. Um, but I mean, and, and it was very funny because at the award ceremony, uh, Lionel came onto the stage and then got a, what looked like one sheet of A4, but it was more than one sheet of A4. Oh. And, and basically, you know, went through the people who had not taken the book. It was a hilarious moment. It was absolutely... Oh, my goodness. Dad Detoxvig and I were uh, hosting together. We were like... You know, what are we going to do? Oh, she's um, just going to keep reading them she's out. Just, she's just going to say <laughs> what she thinks. And, um, wow. and of course, Lionel has continued saying what she thinks. Yes, is often does, in trouble yes. for all sorts of things. <laughs> um, but that sort of non-compliant woman is yeah. still a rarity. Um, and But that, uh, you know, leaving the author aside, because it is about the book, not the person. Yeah. Um, I think We Need to Talk About Kevin was a really important winner as well. Um, and it, it divided the panel. Uh, you know, that and that's not surprising to hear. That's yeah. right. I mean, yeah. I can't even imagine how wonderful, but also incredibly challenging it must be to be a judge on a book yeah. prize. I mean, I, the model itself is so wonderful. I'm, I'm from a film family. My dad's in the Academy. That model is horrendous compared to, you know, yeah, yeah. what you guys do. Um, you know, they, they are members for life. They keep voting, obviously, the... the um, the uh, population of the academy are very are getting older and they're all very white and yes yeah, so it's it's a very different kind of thing and that's the reason why you can look at a literary prize and see real reflection of what's yeah. going on in the culture compared yeah. to maybe some of the more traditional films absolutely and all our um, additional events with panels and things uh, we spend a, a huge amount of time making sure that the panels are properly diverse that we have brilliant women from all areas of yeah. Um, arts and business and you know entertainment uh, because it comes back to the idea of the prize being predicated on reading and looking yes. outwards so it's always you know in, and when we choose the judges the, the question is obviously they are all women who have achieved wonderful things in their long or short lives depending on how old they are um, but the, the thing that I that we always ask ourselves is if you sat next to this woman on the bus or at a drinks party or wherever you are getting changed in the gym and she told you about a book that she loved, would you go and buy it? 
Mm-hmm. And it's so is that so oh, our judges have that. to yeah, they, ideas. Well, it's yeah, great, that, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. So they have to be passionate readers. Um, and every year, you know, I'm inundated with people asking if they could be judges. And, you know, and sometimes we say yes and other times we don't. And people are often quite honest. You know, some really great people that you'd think would be a judge. When I've asked them, they've said, I don't really read much fiction. I don't think I'd be the right person. Mm. And you can't have people who are not passionate readers. Yes. Judging the works of, you know, Margaret Atwood and (coughs) Andrea Levy and, you know, um, whoever else, Zadie Smith, Ali Smith, you know, all of these people. You you owe it to the, the great writers to have great judges. Yeah. Oh, and on that note, we always, Ali and I always finish with just a touching on what we've been reading lately. So it could be in the last few weeks or month or so. <clears throat> is there something that you've enjoyed recently that you really rate and that you would recommend? Well, it's it's difficult because I have been rereading the shortlist because oh, and you can't yeah. Any um, of those. <laughs> so I could recommend all of those, but yeah. not anyone in particular, um, because obviously I read the books along uh, when the judges choose the long list. I you know canter through, uh, but because where I, when I'm interviewing the authors, obviously the level you know I yes, I then go back and enjoy read. um, yeah. reading and um, and so. I, but I've been reading quite a lot of non-fiction. So I um, read a wonderful book called, um, what's it, I'm going to check, the book, uh, the book about getting older for people who don't want to talk about it by Dr. Lucy Pollock. And she's a geriatrician um, in the West Country. And it's, it's a book about what it means to be older. And of course, Karen comes into it, but it's, it's really about the importance of understanding that end of life and dying well is part of living well mm-hmm. and having those conversations. And obviously this is something that is quite close to my heart. Um, so I've been doing um, all of that. And then in fiction, I've been reading in preparation for writing the third um, novel in my Burning Chamber series. I've been rereading uh, William Golding's The Sea Trilogy, oh. um, which, you know, because a lot of my uh, new novel is set on a ship um, and uh, there is no better way to kind of immerse yourself in the, in the landscape um, of, you know, life at sea and things, to, to go back to the sort of older historical novels. I mean, actually, you know, they, they were not written that long ago, really. Um, but, and there are, you know, there's always been issues about how accurate they are in terms of 17th century mm. language on deck and things, but they're really proper adventure stories. And it's a great, a great uh real sense of skill to make a ship for three books the whole world yes you know because you know you don't have that's forests a huge and, yeah. skill yeah it's a huge, huge. Skill. yeah and, and in general do you do you really do you enjoy as a reader for pleasure not just for research but do you um, enjoy reading historical fiction is that one of your favorite genres or do you read across many many genres I, I read across many I would say my favorite genre is actually crime mm. because I don't write in that area yeah, and so you can really just yeah, let yeah, loose yeah, and yeah. be in it. Yeah, that's right. I find with historical fiction, when I'm um, dreaming a new book or starting to plan a new book or whatever, I find historical fiction very, you know, it, it, it kind of gets in the way because mm. unless it's my period, it's so easy to make mistakes with that, you know, that the life of 1550 and 1650 is completely different. Yeah. So reading a book that isn't set in my period isn't is bad idea actually um and if you're reading something that is set in your period and it's brilliant then it demoralizes you so (laughs) i kind of avoid historical fiction when i'm writing but but crime i've always been a big fan of 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 traditional crime i don't like uh, violent uh you know i I think there's far too much um sexual violence against women as entertainment and i don't enjoy those books very much but proper old-fashioned crime and i did just i was lucky enough to read the new anthony horowitz proof um (gasps) Which, oh, which, which comes out in <laughs> August, um, and you know it's it, it's following on, you know, the, from the Magpie Murders. Oh, and, excellent! And the, oh, and I can't at, wait. I love, uh, but it's those, but it's a Hawthorne book. It's one of the Hawthorne yeah. books, um, where Anthony Horowitz himself is a character in it. You know, writing oh, this kind of biography. I have just um, loved those books yeah, so yeah. much. They are just such a joy. And it's really great. He's got, he's so good at clues um, and all of these things. And that comes out in August. So um, that was a real treat. It's a, it's a lovely thing when you get proofs, you get things a little bit early. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> Oh, excellent. Well, I have this past couple of weeks finally read Rachel Cusk's outline, which loads of people had recommended to me. And so I finally got it. And um, in fact, actually, I bought it the first time I went into an actual bookshop, bookshop after they'd been closed for 
for you know four months um and saw it and right right now is the time and oh it was so beautiful it is such unusual storytelling and for anyone who doesn't know it's it's um the protagonist um goes through the story it's about a week set in greece it's a british writer who's teaching and um a creative writing class and it's a book told in about 10 conversations with strangers and yeah. so you learn about the protagonist through the conversation she has with others which mm. is just such an unusual and incredible way of storytelling so i really really enjoyed that very very much um well thank you so much kate this has just been delightful on so many basically my favorite topics caring and books <laughs> i mean it just doesn't get any better so there we are. that's exactly so no it's for being here with me it's been a pleasure and i hope that we will meet in the real world i hope quite so. soon but just quickly if people want to um get in touch or you know where is your your kind of home online where is the best place for people to find you um i'm 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 pretty active on twitter yeah um really and instagram as well um but on my website all of the my agents details and all of these things are there and they are terrific about passing on emails and and, and things like that so they're really really good um yeah because i'm you know i'm i'm always keen to have um, engagement with with readers and I, that's the one thing I've, I've published two books now in lockdown um, and that's and I have missed mm. that um, not being out actually meeting readers and being part of live conversations with people so yeah so yeah find me on Twitter or Instagram um, and yeah my email just send it send things to my agent and he will send them on brilliant thank you so much Kate lovely to see you Betty You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast. You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore writes and Penny at Penny Windsor. Music and editing is by Ewan Miller-McMeekin.